The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. And maybe it's because you know a lot of the funding obviously came out of kind of a venture capital world and they were very protective on how they do it, how they grow it, what their effort, because that's sort of their, you know, it's their secret sauce, right? And so they don't want to be too open about what that is, which I get because they're trying to protect that investment. But I think in a lot of agriculture, there is more collaboration. In a lot of forms, you see a more open kind of feeling of contributing and getting the kinds of interactions that allow you to advance your own business, but also advance the sector as a whole. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 5, welcome back. If this is your first time listening, you are in the right place. This is the show where I interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world and folks doing interesting work in the space as well. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week's episode, we kicked off season five with Juan Gabriel Sucar. He's the CEO and director of Verde Compacto. They're doing some fascinating first mover things in the world of vertical farming in Mexico. And I was really happy to kick the season off with him. We had a really great conversation. Make sure you check that out. This week, round two with John Purcell, CEO of Unfold. John is a friend of the show. I'm really grateful that we got to connect at Indoor AgCon in Vegas, uh, what seems now like a month ago. <laughs> Time is flying in 2022, but uh, it's really interesting and, and really inspiring to see how active John is in the space. And he comes back to the show to discuss the progress they've made helping improve efficiencies within the, the community, his desire to branch up beyond leafy greens, tomatoes, and cucumbers to other crops. And he talks about the recent launch of their Innovation Partner Program. With the various challenges facing this industry, he discusses how he's approaching strategically growing a team and what the next year holds for Unfold. Really exciting to hear about the updates and always grateful to have another hour with uh, return guests. I'm sure you'll enjoy this one. This episode is also brought to you by the Vertical Farming Weekly Newsletter. Each week, our team member Noah brings you the latest and greatest in the world of vertical farming. 
If you are not subscribed, what are you waiting for? It's very easy. Just go to verticalfarmingweekly.com. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes and you have not left us a rating and a review, I'm speaking to you specifically. Head on over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I'd love to read yours out next. Okay, let's jump into this conversation with John. So John Purcell, CEO of Unfold. Thank you so much for round two on Vertical Farming Podcast. Uh, No problem. Good to see you, Harry. So we managed to bump into each other at Indoor AgCon a little bit. It was my first conference since COVID. I hadn't been to anything in two years. I don't know if it was the same case as for you. No, I'd actually done Indoor AgCon in Orlando in the fall. This one felt more natural. I think the Orlando one, I was really glad they did it because everybody was like, really wanted to get together in person. But this one had, I think, a better flow. I think people were more comfortable. But uh, the organizers did a great job, frankly, because they had such a quick turnaround between the fall and then uh, in Las Vegas. But uh, great job. And uh, it was good to see you. Sorry we didn't get a chance to chat more, but it was crazy, man. It was so so many people to talk to. It was fun. It was, it went by so, like like, like we always say this after the fact, like it went by so fast. And for me, it was a lot to take in because it was my first vertical farming conference. And so it was exciting for me to you know, put faces to names, to shake hands, to, to, you know, see you even, even briefly. I saw Nico from uh, NetLed and a couple of other folks, the folks from IGS. And it was just nice. You know, it's, I think we take for granted how much we value like human to human connection because of everything that's happened in the past two years. And I think being out there and for you being out there with your peers and colleagues, and for me, just, you know, connecting with folks that had just up until then been on the other side of a camera. <laughs> it feels really good. And I think you don't realize how much you need that human connection until you don't have it for an extended period of time. No, it's true. And yeah, in, in, in many ways, business always, always boils down to relationships. You know, as even as, as digital as we are now and as virtual as we are now, I think any, if anything, COVID made people realize, yeah, there's a lot we can do virtually, but Man, nothing replaces just seeing people and just chatting, you know. And so, no, it was great. I think you could feel almost that pent up energy. Everybody wanted to talk to everybody, which was insane. <laughs> but it was kind of cool. So it was like you're unleashing this. Oh my God, they all talk to together and talk. So, but that no, was good. How important are these types of events for you, either, you know, for the business or just for you to continue to maintain those connections in, in the industry? Well, I think for us and for any any kind of solutions provider, it's critical because one of the things that always has struck me with with vertical, and it's true with a lot of agriculture, but it really is the collaborations that make the difference. And you know, it's not just we're a seed company, obviously trying to you know get get chance to talk with our direct customers, i.e. the you know the growers. But you know, everybody's in the equation, whether it be the uh, the robotics companies, the lighting companies. That you know, I think because there's so much of a technology play in this it's even more important in an industry like like vertical and our sector like vertical because you have to have all the pieces come together and that's what we try to get out of these meetings you know we had you know it's it's the formal presentations which are great but actually it's all the break times it's the dinner just the lunches because that's when you really can talk about where you're heading and try to get you know those real deeper collaborations that i think are so important for this sector as well as everybody in food tech did you have, I know people, and I usually do this from the podcasting side because I've attended multiple podcast conferences and you have this plan maybe for like, oh, these handful of folks that I want to see, <laughs> that I want to connect with, are you going to be there? You start getting pinged from all your, your colleagues, let's grab lunch. And, you know, 
know what they say about best laid plans. <laughs> and then you get there and everything just kind of falls apart. But did you have a little bit of a plan, you know, given that you had so many, you were going to be in front of so many folks that you hadn't had the chance to connect with in a while? And, and, and were there conversations that you were looking to have that you were able to have? Yeah, actually we did. And I think one thing that helps too, and a lot of companies do this, we actually had four attendees. Okay. And so we did kind of divide and conquer in some ways. But also I knew because I was on a panel, that always spurs a lot of great interactions after because people hear you say something or they, they may have known a little bit about you, but then they get a you know much better sense of what you're about. So I, I actually have more open time going in than my three colleagues because for them, uh, they knew there were certain people they wanted to hit depending upon you know, what, what angle they were coming at. But for me, I knew I had to keep more open time just because whenever you're on stage, it gives you a great opportunity to kind of tell your story. And then there's always follow-ups after because people see you and say, oh, can we talk? That's always, uh, for me, that's always important to make sure you keep enough flexibility in these schedules too. What were some of the takeaways from you? I know I got to catch uh, you know, a lot of folks giving their talks about the, the state of the industry, where we're headed, you know, some of the challenges that the industry is facing. And I, what I appreciated was seeing you in the audience when some of your colleagues were there you know, who could arguably be said as competitors in the space or partners in the space. But is it important for you to to sort of have a finger on the pulse and hear firsthand from, you know, your colleagues what, what's happening, what their perspectives are on where, where we're headed? Oh, absolutely. And I do think almost every one of these indoor ad cons, I've been, I've been going for several years now, um, have gotten better. And I think particularly in, in, in one respect, you probably remember when we talked before, the hype drives me crazy. I mean, I just, you know, I, I think it's just, you don't need it. I mean, we got a great story to tell. It's an amazing industry, an amazing sector, but I do think we're making good progress where you're not just like giving a spiel for investors, but you're really talking about the business. And you're really talking about what we need to do to move the industry forward. You know, there's individual stories, of course, individual companies, but I do think it was less hype, which was great, and more reality. I think the other thing I've seen over the last couple of these is, you're seeing, I guess what I'd call kind of the produce pros, more of them in there, you know, not just from, I mean, as you know, I came from the, the, from the ag industry, been in veggies for 12, 13 years now, but people who came in through more of the produce, produce side, whether it be from seeds or produce buyers or retailers, there was a heavier dose of those folks, which is great because it's telling you that it's being recognized now as an important part of the supply chain. It's not just kind of this techie thing out here that everybody's excited about, but it really is seen as part of a you know, multi-trillion multi, you know, dollar industry. And so I think for me, that was really good to see. And of course, I knew a lot of those folks from my previous time, but I do think that was real. So to me, the, the biggest message was, I think there was a more dose reality, which was great. The hype was lower. And I do think it benefited from having, as I say, some of the real produce pros on the panels, in the conversation, because I think for Vertical to really realize its full potential, we have to be you know, seen as part of, of, of the supply chain, seen as part of where produce is heading, an important part, rather than just this kind of uh, island out there that's really cool tech, you know, without necessarily having the impact we all want it to have. One of the, the stats that constantly gets talked about is the cost to produce, you know, and how people glamorize vertical farming because it's it's sexy. And uh, I think it might have been you that that told me or, or someone in an earlier conversation that like when you told, I think it was your daughter that you were in vertical farming. Now you're cool again because you're in the vertical farming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was her. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, and I do think it, it and it benefits from that because it does have the cool factor. Yeah. But also, I think it, it suffers a bit from that too because in the end, you're still producing 
crop. You know, you're still having to provide not just great quality, but something that people can afford. You have to compete for, you know, for market share, for shelf space, just like every other producer does. And so, yeah, the, you know, the kind of the glamour of it gets you to a certain point, but in, in the end, it has to meet all the other standards, both from a quality perspective, price perspective, you know, con- consistency for the supply chain, et cetera, that every producer has, has to meet. Yeah, it's crazy to think about how far back our conversation goes because you were episode 17 and we just wrapped up episode season four, episode 52. So wow. <laughs> it's, it's wild. But a lot has happened with Unfold as well in terms of how you've grown the team. You announced David as your new CEO. Can you talk a little bit about your thought about where you're looking to strategically grow the team and why that was an important hire for you? Yeah, yeah. So, and I think it is. And I think what we've done, so to get you caught up, so we've got our R&D site now in progress. State of the art, going to be really, really cool in, in Davis, California. We've got great collaborations on the technology side. We've got um, about 20 employees now, which is really cool. You know, as you know, I went from heading a 800-person R&D organization to six hours later being the only employee of Unfold, which is a heck of a transition. I think we talked about it last time, but, but now we're up to 20. It's a really nice mix of folks. We've got made some really got to attract some great people from Silicon Valley, but like companies like Facebook, et cetera, they, they want to contribute in a different way and contribute to food nag. So that's been great. And then adding people coming in more from my world, the, the food nag sector, getting folks from great companies like, like Bear and BASF, et cetera. So uh, it's a nice team. And then David uh, Nothman came on as our COO, as you mentioned. Um, and I think that's really the next phase for us is we've kind of built the R&D engine and we did get our, we have R&D up and running because we're leasing facilities at Bayer actually to get our R&D up and running, which we've been doing for a while, greenhouses, chambers, et cetera, while we're building our site. But the commercial is kind of the next play for us because now that we have the engine up and going, you were getting to a point where we need to really develop what is our business model. And you know, we're, we're looking at developing seed for vertical, but also the digital package, i.e. the, the crop model, the, the, the you know, basically the, the, the recipe on how to grow it too, and combine those two for, I think, be a really impactful product portfolio. So bringing David on, he's building his commercial team now, which is cool. We've got our first customer relations being established, which is great. And we'll talk a little bit about that, this innovation partner program, if I could. And then uh, we got our first revenue, knock on wood, uh, for, you know, not even two years in though. It's, it's modest here. I'm, I'm not going to tell you it's, it's many more than that, but it's nice to have some sales because I think if nothing else for some, you know, for companies just getting started to be able to have that, that validation that, yeah, what we have and not what we're offering is actually in the ultimate, somebody has to want to buy something, right? <laughs> and, and they do, which is cool. But yeah, and I do think, uh, I do, th- I like our position. I like where we are. The board seems happy, which makes me happy. <laughs> but the, uh, but uh, no, it's been a wild ride for, uh, gosh, 20, 21 months, I guess now, yeah. but it's been fun. And I do think we're, uh, the response from the industry has been great too. I think, you know, having a, a company that's a hundred percent focused on indoor ag from the seed perspective, I just know the challenges I had when I was at Bayer trying to carve that out within a big R and D organization. So having that focus, we've gotten really good receptivity from a lot of growers on you know wanting to work with us. Can you talk a little about the product mix in terms of, you know, you mentioned your first sale. So anything specifically you want to go into deeper on that so that people who are new to unfold or maybe hearing about you for the first time. And I definitely encourage them to go back to hear the backstory on episode 17, but like, you know, maybe a little bit of an overview of where you're strategically positioned and who is a, a best fit for you in terms of partners and customers. 
Sure, absolutely. So we are, uh, you know, Unfold came out of, uh, just to recap a little bit, came out of uh, obviously uh, funding, which was important. We had $30 million startup, which was great, between Tomasic and Leaps by Bear. But the other part of the, the launch of Unfold was a license agreement with Bear. And you know, Bear is a major supplier of vegetable seeds, the group I used to head, R&D, for, for, for Bear vegetables. But the, uh, so we have five crops to begin with in our portfolio, lettuce, spinach, tomato, pepper, cucumber. Lettuce and spinach are sort of existing markets that the growers are already participating in. We want to provide and bring new innovations there. Tomato, pepper, and cucumber, I think, is a really important next step, I think, for the industry and the sector to really grow. We got to make the leap to fruiting crops. Berries is another one. Bear is not into berries, but uh, you know we are looking for other opportunities for that germplasm. But I think we started off with a really nice foundation. Uh, the money's great, obviously, but I think the ability now to mine even bears competitors would say world class germplasm. But we have the license specifically for vertical, which is great. So we're taking full advantage of that. So that's our portfolio at this point. You know, I think we're focusing on the leafies for the short term, but we're really trying to make great progress on bringing the other crops online. Tomato being our, our, our biggest effort right now, but pepper and cucumber down the road. And then from the customer base, I think the other thing is what we launched at, at Indoor AgCom was a program we called the Innovation Partner Program. Yeah. But what it's about is I really believe that this sector needs deeper relationships between, I mean, there's some great relationships, I think, on the sort of the mechanics of growing, you know, the lighting, the robotics and all that. And that's really where, the, where, where a lot of these farms started. But I do think in some ways it's been much underserved from the seed side, from the genetic side. So that's what really was the genesis of the Innovation Partner Program. We, we, you know, we want to take it beyond a transactional relationship. I mean, we're fine. If people want to try some seed and buy it, I'm not going to turn down sales, but make it a more collaborative approach. You know, share learning, share data you know, within limits, and then share the success of that. But I do think that kind of deeper relationship, what we're finding is there are definitely companies open to that and recognizing that if you have a great partnership with your supplier, in our case with the seeds, we can really make a lot of advances and help drive innovation. You know, it'll help them as a producer, but also I think it'll benefit the whole sector because we're going to be learning a lot. We're going to be you know, actually developing varieties specifically for vertical farming and just help advance the state of the art, if you will, as far as genetics go for, for vertical. And that's really the, the, what the Innovation Partner Program came about. We've got partners now in North America, Europe, and Asia. I can't tell you because we're going to be announcing soon, Harry, but we're not quite there yet who they are, but okay. you'll be first on our list to get those when they come out. <laughs> Thank you. You'll recognize some of the names, but uh, yeah. it's really exciting for us to be able to, uh, to be able to participate that way. And you know, there's some companies that frankly aren't in a position to do that. You know, as you look at this sector, there are some that are, are much smaller, don't necessarily have our producers, I mean, much smaller, may not have the R&D kind of capabilities or data capabilities. And we're fine. We'd love to be able to work with them on seeing if our seed works. But these are deeper relationships with companies that have you know, more significant kind of R&D capabilities, testing capabilities, data capabilities. That's where we've had some really good traction with, with some major players now that we'll be announcing, like I say, on three different continents who, who are part of this program. And uh, we're excited about it because I think it, it'll help the whole industry. John, when you talk about the importance of developing deeper relationships with these partners through the Innovation Partner Program, I'm curious, like, what do you look for? Like, what is what? Obviously, we're going to hear more when you make the announcement. But when you think about who makes for a strategic partner, who makes for a good partner, who do you want to work with, who is open to work with you? What are some of the criteria that you're looking for? The first is your last point, openness. <laughs> it's people that understand that because you know, I think one of the things that's interesting about this sector, especially. And maybe it's because you know a lot of the funding obviously came out of kind of a venture capital world, and they were very protective on 
how they do it, how they grow it, what their effort, because that's sort of their, you know, it's their secret sauce, right? And so they don't want to be too open about what that is, which I get because they're trying to protect that investment. But I think in a lot of agriculture, there is more collaboration. In a lot of forms, you see a more open kind of feeling of contributing and getting the kinds of interactions that allow you to advance your own business, but also advance the sector as a whole. So one of the things we look for is just that openness. You know, people that understand that, you know, that they're going to give some, but they're going to get a lot. And then the second is, is this basic capacity. You know, for a lot of companies, you know, smaller growers, they're not necessarily able to build, in some, key, in some cases, companies are building separate R&D facilities or building a significant piece of the takeout of production to just to do testing and trialing. You know, for smaller growers, that's not in the cards. They just, you know, they don't have the capacities. So the capacity is the second one. And then the third one is just the data side of things. You know, having the kind of data capabilities and data both on the environmental data, so you understand how you're growing the crop, but also the assessment data on the performance of varieties. Because what we're interested in is the latter. We want to know, you know how does our genetics perform in their, in their environments. But of course, they have to have the ability to understand what it is and how they're controlling that environment to uh, to share what they can of that. We recognize that's in some cases very proprietary, and we're not you know we're obviously not asking to do anything more than they're comfortable with. But really, what we're most interested in is companies that can generate data, do the testing and trialing, and then provide that on the performance of our specific genetic packages that we're providing. And is it still early days? Are you seeing some of the output of that, or you're still sort of like laying the groundwork for that right now? No, we are. And I think it's cool as we, you know, it's with some of these companies that we'll be talking about in the coming weeks, they've already gone through multiple phases of trialing. They've already selected varieties that are basically the last phases before commercialization. Because any pipeline, Harry always starts with the big funnel, right? You've got lots of materials flowing in. And what you have to do is what works for them. But we're at the phase, the stage now where they've, made, they've turned multiple turns, they've seen performance, they've then reassessed at a larger scale, and they're advancing it to basically right before commercial or pre-commercial launches, which is great for us. So we are seeing, you know, some progress and, and some, uh, we're hitting some milestones here, which is very satisfying on materials because, you know, I think we may have talked about this before, but yeah, it's really kind of a biphasic approach. This first phase is just taking all the materials that we can access from bare and just testing it. Because a lot of this stuff has never been tried under vertical. It does a couple of things. One is you can identify varieties that actually will work. And that's, we're seeing some of that, which is great. But the second thing it does for us here is, it's then informing us is, okay, if, if this is the variety that works, let's look at the parents of that. Let's look at the grandparents of that. Let's look at the genetics, order your pedigrees. And then that helps you get your breeding programs in place. So then you can bring the next generation of products in a year or two or three. That's even better based on what you already see having some success in their operation. So, but no, the good news is, yeah, we are seeing some successes just in that screening part of the process, but certainly it's helping us to get our organization together as far as how do we conduct our breeding program? What are the genetic elements that are most important? And then how do we do our breeding program from there? Do you find that those skill sets, like people who've had historical experience in traditional agriculture with breeding and genetics and testing, does that translate well when they come to work in a vertical farming environment? Yeah, that, only because, you know, I mean, I'm, an, I'm old, but, you know, 30 some years in the business, breeding has changed a lot. Okay. I mean, it has basically become, and in every breeding program, it doesn't matter whether you're your end customers, open fields, greenhouse glasses, modern breeding programs are incredibly digitized. I mean, they're just, uh, they're high data intensity. They're really trying to use, we try to do as many, many selections in silico as we do in the field or in the greenhouse, right? I mean, it's really about predictive breeding approaches. So the good news is breeding has evolved that anyway, 
the coolest part about vertical, why I made the leap from Bayer, frankly, is this is our best opportunity to really take advantage of all the data. Because you know the challenge you have with predictive breeding approaches, let's say you're going out to open field, well, you can do all this great, great analysis on this is the varieties that should work, you know, skew it toward those selections, et cetera. But then you go out in the field and it's wetter than it's been in 50 years, or it's been, or it's hotter than it's been. Whereas in vertical, you can do those same predictive approaches, but because you're controlling the environment so exquisitely, it's awesome that you have a much better, really a much better guarantee that genetics is going to perform to its potential because you've been testing under those conditions throughout versus the wild card. You know, there's a basic equation of breeding, G by E by M, genetics or genotype by environment, by management. You know, you manage what you can when you're outdoors or when you're in a greenhouse, but and greenhouse is better than outdoors, but the G then has to be optimized for that. Whereas in the case of vertical, you're using those management tools of the environment to basically control the environment. And then you can really optimize your genetics because the abiotic stresses of you know temperature, humidity, and then the biotic stresses, pests, diseases are much reduced. So you really can optimize your genetics and have a much better guarantee it's going to work on the operator scale because you've been testing it all through those same conditions, which is a really, let's say, it's, I think it's ag's best chance to really take advantage of all the great things that have happened from a digitization, from a predictive approach, et cetera. How much of what's happened over the past two years has colored your approach to what you're focused on at Unfold? Has it changed at all? There's obviously been much more awareness. We talked a little bit about this in, in the first interview people's awareness of supply chain, food deserts, access to local fresh food. You know, does that color or help you think about the the varieties that you're working on? You did mention expanding beyond leafy greens, tomatoes, cucumbers. And do you think about those things in the context of where the world is headed and the challenges we're facing as well worldwide? No, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, that's why having partners now in, in North America Asia and and, uh, and Europe is great because then you get that broader context. And you know, the way I think about it is you know, this first wave, if you will, is it doesn't matter where you are in the world. It's basically urban areas, mega cities, whatever you want to call them. People want fresh, local. They want great quality produce and they want it produced nearer to where they're consuming it. So that's holding now everywhere in the world. We're seeing that. The other piece, which is really even bigger than I was anticipating going into this, is just how important this is from a domestic food production perspective in certain nations. I mean, you think about Singapore, you know, you have a, a very capital rich country, a lot of investment there, very sophisticated electronics industry. They don't have arable land now, right? So for them having vertical farms to, they have a program called 30 by 30, where right now less than 10% of the food they consume is produced in Singapore. Wow. They want to increase that to 30% by 2030. Pretty ambitious, but that country, when they make up their mind, then they can do it. And so they're really, and then the other the other places we're seeing that same kind of mindset is the Middle East. Again, capital rich, a lot of resources, very sophisticated kinds of economies, but it's desert, right? And so vertical farms, again, makes sense. And another one, Harry, you may not think about immediately that we had a lot of conversations about is the UK. And you're thinking, UK, wow. With Brexit, it's kind of changed the game for them. I mean, they do vegetable production, especially brassica and crops like that. But yeah. you know, a lot of their produce flows from the Netherlands greenhouses, glasshouses, from the uh, the Spanish greenhouses, the open fields in Italy and Spain, et cetera. So with Brexit, that's kind of changed a lot of their thinking on, well, actually, 
we need to increase our domestic food because of the tariffs and other things that are happening with Brexit. I mean, so there's been a lot, and they have, of course, a great history on food and ag, so, you know, and, and science. So vertical makes sense for them as well. But that's sort of the second tier of this thing, I think, is countries that are just making a really concerted effort and putting in place public policies to support vertical farming. And it's, you know, and it's and really a lot of the farms being built are being built by European and U.S. entities who then have operations in these countries as well. So it's really a global, a global landscape. And then the third area, which hasn't developed yet, but as I've gotten a lot more, I think, sort of perspective on is how can the existing food supply chain take leverage vertical farming to a much greater extent? And this is, you're having conversations now where retailers are saying, well, what if we had a vertical farm at our distribution center? Or what if we had a vertical farm, if you're an e-retailer, what if we had a vertical farm at a fulfillment center? That's a pretty cool world, you know, where you're literally, your supply chain is driving across a parking lot. There's an operation in China where they literally built it connected to their packaging and distribution center and the food is produced, packaged, and sent right out. Harry, you can't get a better supply yeah. chain. Right? <laughs> you take a lot of risk. And, and, you know, for a lot of retail, taking risk out of your supply chain is huge. So I do think that's a play that's going to develop over time. Right now, they're, of course, they're accessing produce from different vertical farms, but a more hands-on kind of approach or a more very well-connected supply chain, whether it be, although there's really no traditional retailers left, everybody's e-retail as well, but I mean, either, either e or, or conventional retail, having that more intimately tied into their supply chain is going to be a, a big thing. You're not going to replace Salinas Valley or the greenhouses in Canada, but you can supplement it. You can de-risk your supply chain. And I think Vertical could play a huge role in that. I was able to have a brief chat with Michael Yates from uh, Walmart when I was at the, the conference. And, and when you think about companies that can have an impact and move the, you know, just move a lever and just really make a, a really big push and an awareness in terms of a shift, because I got the feeling a lot of folks were clamoring to have a conversation with Michael yeah. <laughs> at, at, at the conference. <laughs> I've been to that in Arkansas, so don't worry. Everybody wants to go. Arkansas has more visitors you could possibly imagine, but no, they're huge, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting when you, as you you know you know brought out those examples and what's happening in China, and I think it's a, an awareness, and people don't realize what's happening behind the scene, but a company like Walmart can shed light as to the importance of, of vertical farming, having that close connection, and having that you know just people thinking about how fresh is your produce. And it's, it's not a question that most people ask because they're just so used to just walking to the supermarket and just seeing it on the shelves. But it's it's something that I'm more conscious of. Like I see the brands and I'm, I walk more slowly past the the leafy greens section in supermarkets now than I used to because I'm like, oh, I, I know that company. I've spoken to that person. <laughs> and I think it, part of it is, is education as well, don't you think? Oh, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. And I think when you think about it, doesn't matter if it be the Walmarts or other retailers, they're looking at this much more broadly than Leafy's. You know, I think Leafy's was a great place for vertical to start because, you know, low light intensity, you can produce a lot of it and it's a rapid cycle time and you're harvesting in 25, 30 days. So you can get a lot of produce through quickly. But, you know, I think for us to really realize the full potential of this, this is where back to the fruiting crops. You know, think about what's happened in tomatoes over the last 10 plus years moving to much more snacking types, moving to smaller, moving to, you know, really a, the more flavor intense, the consumer experience, really driving tomatoes. They're still the big commodity tomatoes, but you know, what most people buy are basically smaller, good tasting snacking, right? And that's what the glass houses produce. And peppers are seeing the same kind of thing. And, and, you know, I think all the crops are really looking at that convenience factor and that, uh, uh, you know, the direct consumption side of things. And, and that's where, you know, and berries have always been there, but I think, uh, I think for vertical to really, really 
succeed at the level we all want it to, we got to make this leap. And we got to be able to deliver not just leafies and microgreens, et cetera, but really deliver on the on the potential of fruiting crops. Because we've all had the experience where you get a pack of berries and they're great one week and a week later, maybe they're not so great. Or tomatoes. And I was in tomato business for a long time. It's, it's tough because conditions can change things. And as great as the growers are, you just have challenges there. So having that absolute consistency every day of the year, my gosh, at the consumer level, that would play very big. Has there been a transition, John, in terms of like breeding where I, I imagine the focus in early days was about presentation and color and, and making sure stuff looked good and there's, you know, the, the dirty little secret of all, like all the ugly peppers get thrown away, <laughs> all the deformed tomatoes get thrown away. And I'm wondering now, you know, if, if breeders think, you know, all bets are off, like, because there's limits, obviously, with what you can do in, in the contained environment. But in terms of like, shapes that we're not accustomed to, you know, colors we're not accustomed to, just part of the education is also to the consumer to saying, hey, your perceived notion of what a, a cucumber looks and tastes like, or you know, what a, a tomato looks and tastes like can be different. And that's part of the challenge as well. No, it, it absolutely is. Because, you know, one of the things I was taught early on when I went into the vegetable side of the business is, you know, it's not, don't talk about taste, talk about sensory experience. Because the fact is, the way that we perceive an eating experience actually goes well beyond what it actually tastes. It's how it feels in your mouth. It's even the sound. Does it actually, do the, is the crunch right? It's the color. It's the appearance. And one of the things that uh, one of our uh, sensory scientists uh, taught me a great lesson. They did an experiment just to prove it, but he knew the answer was they actually left the green material, the calyx on some tomatoes, and then the other tomatoes didn't have it. Every time they, anyone, any of the tomatoes, that had the green on it, people perceived as better, even though they knew the bricks were, you know, the sugar wasn't as good. And that just shows you the cues you have with your eyes or your, you know, or your, or your the smell. There's a lot of cues that contribute to how we perceive <laughs> the, the pleasing nature of, 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 of what we eat. And so it is truly a sensory experience, but you know, ugly fruits and things like that. Yeah, they have a role and they're, they're getting more power, but it's hard because there are those perceptions. You, this is what a tomato should look like, or this is what a pepper looks like. And then if it does, it's more likely you're going to say, well, that's going to taste good. You know, and then you pick it up, well, it feels right. Put it in your mouth, it feels right in your mouth, and then the taste kind of goes along with it. But it's very, that science, it is a real science. It's pretty darn complex, but it's pretty cool. But, you know, changing consumer attitudes or consumer perceptions on things, it's different. You know, but I do think vertical, again, is a unique position because Think about what they even do with leafies. It's a lot of medleys. It's a lot of combinations of things that people like to get. And before you could only get that when you went to a restaurant, whereas now you walk into the grocery store, you got a really cool mix of things. Right? Spring mix, so, yeah. Right, right. You know, years ago, you didn't see that kind of stuff. You bought a head of iceberg and chopped it up, right? That's the, we're spoiled now, right? We want to have that mix. We want to have those things. And I say tomatoes going toward much smaller snacking types, good flavor, and the colors too. There's some really cool colors now. That, and again, it adds to a really cool, from the time you buy it, you're already excited. Because, oh, look at that neat mix I bought. So different types and different you know, shapes, color sizes, et cetera. So. And it's been interesting because you've been, you have a unique perspective having been in the industry and involved in genetics and breeding for such a long period of time. Over the course of the years or even decades, what are you seeing or what, is in what are innovations that are happening in this space? Yeah, I think the the first one is, is certainly 
there's been a big shift and, and it had to happen. It kind of came with, I think, consumer demand for this. For a long time, it was about kilograms and, and shipping and, you know, getting product from point X to point Y at a certain price point, And then, you know, let the consumer, here you go, buy it. Right. And so, whereas now- Take it or leave it. Then, you know, sort of, sort of like, <laughs> we're going to produce as much as we can at this price, get it to consumers. That's what they're looking for. But I think it doesn't matter whether it be berries or tomatoes or melons, et cetera. People are looking for a different experience and they're willing to pay a little more. They're willing to have, there's cost ceilings in this thing, but for good quality, people are willing to pay it. The other thing that's been really interesting to me, and so what's happened is it's driven the innovation. So you can't have either or. It's not going to be yield or flavor or sensory experience. You got to have both. And so, and from day one in any kind of vegetable breeding program, fruit breeding program, you've got to focus on both. How does it perform agronomically, but how is it going to be perceived at consumer level? So that's been one of the big innovations. Is And the good news is, as we've learned more about the genetics, how to take out some of the negative attributes, how to still have decent yields, but then build in the sensory experience. And that's really come with a lot of the power of modern biology, which is understanding the genetic level what's happening. But the other thing at the consumer level, which has been interesting to me, is, is that you know, it used to be it was about how does it taste and you know how much does it cost, kind of standard intrinsic qualities of that. But now the questions people ask is, where was it grown? How was it grown? Who grew it? Which gets you to in a whole different kind of, what is the information you need to provide the consumers? How do you tell the story of this? But that's pretty cool, actually. You know, I think what it's a maturing of it, but also it gives you an opportunity to really use all the power of, of the way you can give people information now to tell the story of your fruit and veggies. And that's that's a really cool thing to do. But is it very different the kinds of questions consumers ask now well beyond kind of the intrinsic qualities of, of the of the fruit and veggie that's interesting because it brings up the question of how well because my, my marketing brain then just kicks in like when when people like you know i like going into restaurants where you see the back of the menu and it's the story of like the owners and like you know how they started and we started in like this small little place and now it's grown and and by the time you're like ready to order, you feel like a connection to the place where you're enjoying your meal. And I'm and I'm wondering, as you were saying that, I was thinking if there's opportunities with you know everyone in the space to, you know, through the tagging, you know, what's the journey of this tomato, <laughs> you know, and and how did it end up on your plate, and you know, and what part can maybe unfold help in in terms of either the tracking or telling the story or, or telling, you know the genetic history, the family tree of, of this, you know, did you know the, what the lineage of this tomato is? Because you're talking, you know, going back previous in terms of the breeding, like when you do the, the um, you talked about how you go back different up the tree in terms of like telling that story. And I imagine there might be a, a story there if you if you think back, like the history of tomato and, and genetically, like where they came from. No, there absolutely is. And then get people out that were willing to tell that story, you know, and actually personalize it. Talk, have the breeder there talking about, here's what I did. And here's where this drills come from. But now you're actually right. And it's interesting because I was on the uh, Science Technology Committee of uh, Produce Marketing, PMA. It's now I, part of IFPA. But the uh, it was interesting because we did a whole session. Uh, actually, uh, we did a whole initiative around how do you use blockchain and other ways to you know, communicate, you know, where a product comes from, but it started out very much an exercise around food safety. You know, it's like, okay, we got to trace all this because we want to, you know, be able to assure consumers the safety. If something happens, we can trace back where the, where the incident happened, et cetera. But it evolved pretty quickly. And we, you know, a lot of us espouse that, you know, we can talk, the defensive piece is great. You have to have food safety. Nobody's arguing that. That's your table stakes at the beginning of the game. But there's a whole nother opportunity to use this ability, this traceability, this transparency, this supply chain 
to do exactly as your marketing brain is telling you, Harry, to tell the story. You know, tell the, some restaurants do it great. I think some producers do it great, actually, too. You know, really talking about here's what we're about, here's where we're from. And, and, and it comes down to it's not just about the product. It's about the people behind the product. And we do blogs on our website, too. And there's some great stories. One of our, one of our folks that you know, came out of the dot-com world, it's really cool to hear his story. Why he wants to use all his, you know, all his software engineering skills. As, you know, it's great to help people meet each other and whatever you want to do on sharing photos of your vacation, but he actually wants to contribute to producing food in a better way. And that's a great story, right? So get him out there talking about that. And that's exactly what he did. So it does come down to the story of the product, but it's also the, the story of the people behind the product, which is a really powerful way to communicate with your consumers. Yeah, and I, especially to this idea of everyone going into a supermarket and seeing, you know, produce as a commodity, you know, there's really no connection. You know, you go into the other aisles and you see the brands and you see the packaging and you see the labeling and, you know, they, they spend probably more on the marketing sometimes than they do on the actual product. <laughs> but it, it gives them a leg up because there's an association. Like, you know, if I asked you, like, what's your childhood memory of like your, what's your first smell like as a child? Like, you know, it, does anything come to mind? First smell is <laughs> yeah, yeah. myself is my, myself is probably my guess, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't, Someone asked me once, know. and I, I thought of Play-Doh for for some reason, like oh, oh yeah, the, yeah, 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 or Crayola crayons or something like that. But even like no, but it's funny though because one of the most and it's growing up where I, I grew up on the, in Washington D.C., but we did our all our vacations. I spent time a lot of time with my aunt's corn and soybean farm on the Chesapeake Bay. But one of the and I was just back on uh, back on the Eastern Shore this uh, this past weekend and. One of the things that just over when this it's gonna sound weird the smell of crabs. I mean, just oh, yeah. you know, just, just you know that there's just a very earthy kind of ocean. You know, it, the bay it just it all comes together and it's like vivid. You know, it's like yeah, this is this is what I remember. It's it's just you know, sounds kind of weird, but it was such a big you know setting out your crab nets, cooking the crab, sitting on the beach doing it, and, and it, it's just a whole sensory experience and memories just flood back every time but it is the smell that actually triggers it this is a very distinct way that crabs have a smell and if you're from the area it's like yeah this is what it's about man it's like, like I, i'm sure if you ever you've probably in passing have caught the smell of a crab and we're, it's almost like a time machine you're like it is i bother if i the seasoning called old bay seasoning i tend to put it on everything which kind of over, it over, it overwhelms people and i was like how do you yeah, but i think it's part of it is that it's linked to your your history right to your own yeah. personal side of things so, yeah yeah, so I think there's an opportunity, I, you know, as the industry matures, you know, to, to bring more of that in, to, you know, tell those stories and to remind people that there is an association with, it's one of those universal things like a, a meal at home, like time, you associate it with time with family and then everyone's earliest memories of some type of like gathering and the ability to like bring people together. And, and I think there is, there is opportunities for that. Yeah, one of the one of the good news is, is frankly that you know about one percent of the U.S. population produces food, but you know the other ninety nine percent are putting pictures on Instagram or Facebook of food, right? And talking about it. so no, but, but it does. It's a great, but it's a great opportunity, frankly, because people are into it now, right? Yeah, yeah, people yeah. are really into it, and so they're open to wanting to know more about it, where their food comes from, how it's produced, and all that. So and I think in the fruit and vegetables, it's a great opportunity. Whether you use QR codes, other ways to do it, you know, to tell that story of individual products. So yeah. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, the blockchain, and I I did fall down the uh, crypto NFT rabbit hole in, in December. So I, 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 I you know, I, but it was interesting this idea of like sourcing and like 
the, this eternal record, the ledger, like there's just tracking and how it can be applied. And right now it's for like, you know, the, the JPEGs and the artwork and now musicians are learning this, but you know, to your point, there's no reason why, you know, for people who are curious and concerned about where their food comes from, like the technology now is, is exists and some of it is, is in its infancy, but there are opportunities to really give people that confidence that they know, because, you know, in early days, you know, growing up in the seventies and eighties, like you just ate what was on the table and probably way too much sugar and like lucky charms and frosted flakes <laughs> and just stuff that you like, you know, you know, that's a balanced diet though. Right? <laughs> lucky charms and frosted flakes. So yeah, no, exactly. But you know, my mom, I mean, I was one of seven kids, right. And she was there. It was about, it was about calories. How do I how do I feed nine people? Right? And so, and but yeah. you know, but there also the expectation wasn't there. You knew certain times a year you had certain things, whether it be peaches or tomatoes, or whatever. You just didn't expect it other times. Whereas now, I mean, I tell my kids they're spoiled. They will walk in, they will get whatever they want. They want it every day, which is you know. Where's my I, kiwi? Where's my mango? Right, right. Where's, <laughs> what, you're out of kiwi. What the heck, right? <laughs> but you know, the forty fifty, you would never even think in those terms because it was just a foreign concept. You just yeah, you, know, you ate what was seasonal and you did that. But people are looking for that same quality that they remember, but they want it every day of the year, which again gets you back to indoor, right? Yeah. yeah. How do we use indoor? And that's really what Globe drove a lot of the high quality stuff in tomato and peppers, for example, going into the greenhouse, a glass house, because it gives you a longer season, it gets you higher quality, and then vertical is going to is flowing is, is following the same route. So getting close to wrapping up here, I just want to bring it back full circle and. As you look, you know, anything three to five years is just way too far out now, given, you know, the world we just experienced. So just next 12 months, like what's on the roadmap? What has you excited about what, what you have planned to unfold? Yeah, for us, I think the short term, most short term is getting our site up and running. We're all really excited. I mean, it's been wonderful to have leased the space from Bayer to, you know, to get R&D up and going. But turning that key and opening the door and you will get an invitation. Don't worry. We're going <laughs> to open the That'd doors. Great. I'd love it. it. No, it'll just be fun. And I think when you see just the different technology partners we put together to build this thing. It's going to be fun to see. I think for our customers, they're excited too, to, you know, just to see our vision for how we're going to provide them the solution. So that's, that's certainly short term. I think the other one we're looking for is continue to make progress on the innovation partner program, get more partners involved, get products flowing out to them or get data flowing between us and them, which is great. But I do want to make some real progress too in the next 12 months on the other crops, you know, whether it be tomato, we're looking for some germplasm deals to bring in some other crops because I think the industry needs it. I think the sector needs it. I mean, I do think it's going to take a pretty concerted effort because unlike the leafies where it's more, I think, refining products and getting them to, you know, be successful for, for tomatoes, I don't think the solution's there yet. I, mean, I just think what we want is basically the flavor you have out of a greenhouse or glasshouse, but in an architecture that's much more amenable to a Proceeding in a, in a vertical farm, and I think you know there's going to be some I think great progress, and we're looking at some collaborations to help us realize that uh, you know that vision for where we're heading in this. So I think for those crops, well, so for us, it's going to be the site, the customers, and then uh, the portfolio, I and mean, that's what we want to look for for the next next twelve months. Asked this last time, so see if you have a, a different answer. But what's a tough question you've asked yourself recently? Uh, what could I have done to accelerate things more? Okay. And, and I think I, I really challenged myself and the board is wonderful, but we did a great exercise end of year saying, okay, let's really look back and say, okay, let's look forward to what could we have done to accelerate things? Because one of the great things, and I don't want to sound like a patent ourselves on the back, but it's, we're, we're really, uh, I think a pretty unique entity. And I think we're, we're serving a sector and a group of customers that really are looking for this. They really want 
the attention of a company that's going to provide them solutions and be 100% dedicated to that. So anything we can do to accelerate, heck, here we've had conversations over 35 vertical farms now. Wow. Everybody wants to talk, which is fun. <laughs> you know, as, as a startup, it's like, this is great, but you feel like, oh my gosh, we're going <laughs> to, you know, you just feel so focusing on, you know, a subset of those in the short term anyway has been good. But I do think we need to do this. And it's not just dedicated companies like Unfold. I'm really, you know, people say, well, you really are happy. I say, I am actually really happy to see some of the traditional C companies taking this more seriously too. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be honest, I think it's been underserved. And I think there's been incredible advances. If you look at these farms and you look at the, the HVAC systems, you look at the robotic systems, you look at the imaging systems, all the things they built into that, Oh my gosh. And then they're just growing stuff that was developed for other purposes. Here, try it, throw it over the fence. It's kind of crazy. I, you'd never walk into a glass house in Netherlands and say, Oh, here's something we developed for open field. Give it a try. They'd say, Here's the door, right? There's no way in heck. Yeah. Vertical farms, I tell you, you have to have the same standards. You should demand that this is stuff that's being developed for you. So there's no question the demand is there. We're going to do it, I think, as a 100% entity. I think the traditional seed companies you're seeing adapting as well. And that's really cool too, because they're actually now putting together programs, taking this, you know, to, with the serious nature it deserves, frankly. Yeah, it's interesting because they're probably watching from the sidelines for a while, just seeing where the industry was headed and then realizing like that they do have something to contribute. They do have a lot of R&D, historical R&D and, and work that they've put in the space and then just deciding that it's important for them to play a role in, in the future of vertical farming and with their experience as well. What's an ask you have of my audience? Oh, I just, you know, to me, it's just, Keep the conversation going, you know, because I think what's cool about your audience, it's you're drawing people from all over, not just people in the industry, but people that are interested in the industry. I'd say uh, give us a chance, but also keep us, <laughs> hold our feet to the fire on not rearing into the hype and the hyperbole <laughs> and being real about it. You know, when I hear, I don't know, not to be smart, but I heard somebody at one of these conferences, they asked him what crops would be potential. And they said corn and soybean. I said, no, don't, you know, don't go there. Don't live. Yeah. We're not putting 200 million acres of corn and soybean in a, in a warehouse, right? And don't go there. And so I think, you know, one of the things that I'd ask anybody to be discriminating about is cut through the hype, cut, ask real questions about, and hold us to the standards you hold for any other producer, you know, whether it be the greenhouses in, in the Canada, the glasshouses in the Netherlands, the open field growers in Salinas Valley, you should expect just as high quality and making real efforts to get the price point, the cost of goods to a point where it's accessible. Because that's the other thing. You have great stuff, but if it's not accessible to people, what are you doing, right? So, yeah. Yeah, it becomes something that like folks with disposable income or, you know, fancy meal folks <laughs> like are the ones that can that can enjoy this. And it, that's, it, it actually is, you know, doesn't speak to the, the potential of what vertical farming can be in terms of democratizing access to, to fresh food. And I think driving down that price point without sacrificing quality, I think is going to be like the, the, the crucial, you know, juncture for folks to get right as we move forward. No, and I agree. And I do think this is where actually the, the genetics can help too. You know, we have conversations about where are your costs, right? And, you know, a lot of times it's energy. Okay. Can we get you yes. a crop? that has more yield? Can we get you a crop that develops faster? Let's say you, you harvest in 25 days and 27. Well, that's two days you're shaving off. Can we get you a crop that uses less light or converts biomass to light more efficiently? Those are all things going to help you, the grower, on your cocks. And so those are very real conversations while also focusing on the kind of top line, the differentiated product, the newer stuff that helps them uh, you know, provide a great product for consumers. But you got to address the cocks piece because I, 
you know, who wants me? You know, there are lots of elitist industries. I'm not an elitist kind of guy. <laughs> it's just like, you know, for me, let's make this a significant piece of where people yeah. get their food. And that's a victory for us all. Yeah. We can have a separate conversation of the folks developing the vertical farming for the space station. <laughs> you know what? I just gave a talk to, uh, there's a joint group between NASA and USDA. And I gave a talk to great interactions. And you see NASA people actually at some of the vertical farm conferences. It's really cool. But, you know, a lot, there's a lot of things. Technologies developed for space play on Earth too, and so yeah, I yeah. think there's a, there's a great opportunity though because if we're gonna, you know, hopefully we won't screw up this planet so bad we have to do it. But if we're gonna head head out to space anyway, you know, let's uh, they're gonna need ways to produce food, and vertical fits beautifully in that. Totally. Great group at USDA and NASA working on this, and great scientists. I had a, I had a ball having interaction with them, so yeah, very cool. Well, John, always a pleasure to get caught up with you and uh, just hear. It's really exciting to have these conversations, to hear the potential. Just you know, it's, as the industry matures, as our audience learns more, as I learn more, as more developments happen in the space, I think it's really exciting. And there's no shortage of channels that we need to get this message out, to educate people that are new to the industry, that are veterans from other industries, that come in with preconceived notions of, of what you know they can or can't contribute to this industry. And I think just having that open conversation, what you're doing with the partner program, I think is an important first step. And it's almost like this idea of like R&D as a service, <laughs> where you're allowing people to share. And, and, and there is an opportunity to have this part of this research that's available for the benefit to grow the industry, which I, which I think is admirable. And I really applaud you for doing that. Oh, thank you, sir. Harry, always great seeing you. I really appreciate what you're doing too. Because Getting the word out and having the right conversations, it's, it's a critical piece for the success of the industry. So thanks for all you do. Yeah. So unfold.ag for folks to learn more. Any other place you want to direct folks or is that the best? Oh, you can always hit me on LinkedIn. Okay. We do a lot on LinkedIn. It's a great place to everybody's connected there. So it's awesome. Okay. I appreciate your time again, John. Thank you, Harry. Appreciate it too. Thanks to John for coming on the show and sharing his stories. As always, full show notes are available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. You'll find a recap of the episode, timestamps, any resources mentioned, and some quotes from the episode that you can share on social media, because I'm sure that's what you do every time you listen to one of these episodes, isn't it? If it isn't, you should probably do that. Special thanks to our Season 5 title sponsor, Cultivated. If you are looking for a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. If you're interested in learning how a podcast would be beneficial for your business, you can learn more at fullcast.co. As a reminder, if you are enjoying this show, leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP, and we'll be sure to read these out on future episodes. Tune in next week for a conversation with another fascinating leader in the world of vertical farming. This time, it's someone who's been in the space for a while supporting the fresh produce industry, Bonnie Estes. It's going to be a really great conversation. Make sure you check that out. Until we meet again next episode, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.